Hello and welcome to JobsCast. In today's episode, I speak with Doris Landaverde about her work as a custodian and volunteer and organizer for the cause of TPS, which stands for Temporary Protected Status. Since we talked quite a bit about this subject, I thought I'd provide some information at the top of the show from AmericanImmigrationCouncil.org, which I've also linked to in the show notes. So Congress created TPS in the Immigration Act of 1990. It is a temporary immigration status provided by the Department of Homeland Security to nationals of specifically designated countries that are confronting either an A, ongoing armed conflict, B, environmental disaster, or C, extraordinary and temporary conditions. A TPS designation can be made for 6, 12, or 18 months at a time, and it provides a work permit and stay of deportation. As of April 2022, the following 15 countries are on the TPS list. Burma, El Salvador, Haiti, Honduras, Nepal, Nicaragua, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, Ukraine, Venezuela, and Yemen. In our discussion, Doris and I discuss the experience of her emigration to the U.S. from El Salvador, what her work experience has been like in this country, her work life as a custodian at Harvard, the American Dream, her involvement with TPS advocacy, and much more. In the show notes, you'll find links where you can extend your learning on these topics, and I'd like to direct you in particular to the piece by Rangaraj Vijvanathan, the former Indian ambassador to Venezuela, Colombia, Argentina, Bolivia, Uruguay, and Paraguay. What a career. It serves as a good introduction to and summary of U.S. involvement in Latin America over the past 60 years or so. It's a complicated topic that I have zero expertise in, but after talking with Doris and reading a few articles, I'm certainly interested in going deeper. I've talked before in opening monologues about the need to resist the allure of taking a side in a binary, and one gigantic binary that I can see a certain kind of listener imposing on this conversation is the question of America as good guy or bad guy. The answer to me is clearly that America is both. What's not clear is what to do with that. But for starters, thinking more, judging less, and avoiding taking sides should help impart more clarity and discernment. As John Stuart Mill said, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. I hope you enjoy our talk. As always, please feel free to email me with any declarative, exclamatory, or interrogative sentences. My email is pat.bubul at gmail.com. I now present my conversation with Doris Landaverde. Doris, welcome to JobsCast. Hi, I'm happy to be here today. Thank you for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what your current job is. Yes, uh, my name is Doris Landaverde. I work as a custodian in Harvard University, but also I am voluntary organizer of for Mass TPS Committee and the National TPS Alliance is a, you know, an organization we're fighting for permanent residency for TPS holder, Temporal Protect status. As a custodian, also I am a member of the union, CIU 32BJ. Can you explain what TPS status means to anyone listening who has no idea what that is? Yes, it's kind of like a visa, like the government uh, granting some countries when the countries are devastated for earthquakes, uh, hurricanes, or they suffer a civil civil war. For example, now we have Ukraine, and I know uh, the government already grant uh, TPS for Ukrainians because they are, you know, they are in a, in a war now. It's kind of help people are in the United States who can work legally 
and you know driving and it's really good it's something like help immigrants coming to this country to looking for the dream the american dream and it's really good i i have it i am tps holder i have it for 20 years and you know this is helped me a lot but the reality wasn't for me was devastating in 2018 when the government ending the TPS for El Salvador and since then I live in nightmare because we just have a automatic extension until uh, December 31st when the time come we had to you know leave uh, United S. It's kind of visa but it's temporary but for for me when they they renew that because we had to renew every 18 months and we had to pay $600 every 18 months to renew. But now mm. we can renew anymore. And, you know, we are we have a family. For El Salvador, it's 200,000 200, Salvadorians. And, and before, the numbers of TPS holders was uh, 400,000. And, but I, I know now it's grow up those numbers because they they granting Venezuela, uh, Ukrainians and others countries. I believe uh, the numbers grow up, but for some some groups of TPS holders, we have to the line to leave the United States. And this is harm our families. I have three daughters. They are born here. They are Syrians and you know, bring them to a country they, I don't know, is, is so painful. So you said in 2018, the government ended the TPS program and your automatic extension ends at the end of this year, 2022? Yes, because uh, the organization I, I, I work voluntarily, the National TPS Alliance, with other uh, organizations and uh, some uh, lawyers, they assume the administration say, first, he no investigate the countries when he ended TPS, and also he- some, he, he is Donald Trump? Yes. Right. He make uh, some kind of or racist comments to, to those countries, and this is why we are still in in extension because we you know we we fighting and now we are like in the court and this is why we are protect until now wow let's back up a little bit to your story doris so what made you leave el salvador and come to the us i am a farm girl i grew up in the farm in a place we don't have electricity we don't have water uh, we had to walk two hours to get the bus, and the bus took four hours to go to the city, like to go to the doctor, to shopping food. And when I decided to to come into here was because my mom was sick. In my country, if we don't have a money, people die because they don't have a money how to pay the doctors. Yeah. And, and this is yeah. the main reason I decided to come here, to help my mom. And I have my siblings, and that in that time they they were small kids, and I wanna help her to raise them. What was your mom's health condition? You know, she have problems with the heart, mm. and 
in, in my country, those marriages is expensive and, you know, just to go to the doctor is so expensive. Yeah. And you said, Doris, this was 20 years ago that you came to the U.S.? Yes, almost 21. I know now you're currently employed by Harvard University. So how did you find that position? You know, when I came here, I started working in different factories. But after that, I have a friend. She helped me to come into work in Harvard. And I really appreciate her because, you know, and also uh, helped me because I have TPS and, you know, I can work. And since 2006, I came to work in the Harvard University as a custodian. What were those first few months like being out of your home country? The weather's different. The language is different. The food is different. What do you remember from the first few months living in the U.S.? And also, how did you choose Boston? Or maybe you were in a different part of the U.S. before going to the Boston area? No, I came to Boston because my family uh, is here. You know, I grew up in the mountains. The weather in the place I grew up is a little chilly. Like when I came to Boston, I, I feel okay with that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I feel okay. And, um, you know, but believe me, when I arrive into Boston and I see those old buildings and everything like crown and all, I say, why I risk my life to come in here <laughs> because people say, when people come from the u.s to my country they say oh over there is beautiful it put you this is a like a paradise but when i come and i see all those i say why because you know cross the board is is risk I, I put my life in risk in many ways and and i was just when I, I, I arrived in East Boston, because my family used to live in East Boston, I saw the old building. This is what I feel, why why I risk my, my life. I think trees are better than buildings in general. <laughs> yes. Can you say a little bit about the actual crossing of the border physically and logistically? What made the difference? What allowed you to successfully get to East Boston. 21 years ago was more easy to cross the port. Mm. It was danger, but it's still more easy than now. I feel the problems in different countries, like I will put, put you example, Central America now is the state for the climate change. Yeah. This is made people immigrate and plus the violence, uh, for example, Salvador, Honduras, and a lot of people start, you know, immigrate. And I think this is affect like how hard is cross the board. But was was danger. I, I remember uh, see people die when I came here. Like people try to steal the things we have, the money we have, and they and they kill people. They hiding us in the buses. Uh, you know, the place uh, we put the luggage and we cross Mexico like this. They put us in the big trailers, like fill it up with people. And after the other half, they put uh, fruit to cross us. And this is was danger uh, being there for 24 hours sometime. It's really like danger. And, and you were in a truck like that, that, that also had fruit. Yes. 
were you praying? I'm sure you couldn't sleep. Your mind must have been racing. What do you remember thinking and feeling during that drive? You know, I suffered for trauma, something happening with me when I was a child. And always when I feel scary, I sleep like deeply. Oh, wow. So you did sleep? Yes, just because I remember my uncle was with me and he always get up me when it's time to get up and, mm-hmm. and when we stop. I think this is the the things helped me a lot to survive the, the trip. Amazing. I want to talk about the American dream. You used that phrase in your initial comments. I think there are two completely different types of the American dream, perhaps more. So in my case, I'm uh, a third generation American. All of my great grandparents, except one, were born in Europe. So my grandparents were first generation Americans, my parents are second generation Americans, and that makes me third generation Americans. And as things go today, for white third generation Americans, we're, we're quite severed, I would say, from our home cultures. So in my case, my heritage is Italian and Lithuanian, and I don't speak Italian. I don't speak Lithuanian. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I, I wish I did. I think in my case, for white Americans whose great-grandparents migrated in the early 20th century, the idea of the American dream is basically to acquire more wealth and to have more stability and to have more opportunity. And there was a disruption to that American dream because my parents' generation, baby boomers, in general, had a much easier time working and acquiring wealth than my generation, millennials. I graduated from college in 2009, shortly after the financial crisis. Then 10 years later, dealing with the pandemic like everyone else. So the sort of domestic version of the American dream, where each generation is is having more material abundance, I think has been, uh, if it's not over, it's at least been severely disrupted. But your version, Doris, I think is entirely different. The American dream story of living in a place where you mentioned some of the the violence in Central America and the problem with health care and the affordability of it. You came to the U.S., it, it sounds like, primarily to be in a place that just has more basic stability, basic safety. So, Tell me a little more about what you think about that. In your case, 20 years have gone by now, and you are an active member of your community. You're doing this very admirable volunteer work with TPS. We'll talk more about your work in the union at Harvard. Do you feel that you are living the American dream? When I was granting with TPS in 2001, yes, I feel like I start live my dream because I was able to work. And you know, have a good job, job with uh, with benefits. I feel so proud, and I feel like uh, I start, you know, my my American dream. Because what I looking for was the opportunity to buy a house for my mom in the city. Like she know how to walk a lot, or you know, to go to the hospital. Look in a place like she can have uh, electricity, uh, have a a clean water, you know what I mean? And um, and I was able to work and send money to, to buy the house for her. I bought a house for my mom in a city named Metapan. Uh, it's small, but she's happy in there uh, with my my siblings. And, you know, um, 
I feel I, I realized after in 2006, I coming as a mother and I will be able to have a house here to drive in like things I can do it in my country. But since 2018, when the President Trump and the DPS, I feel my American dream I lost because all these four years in his administration, I feel it's like a nightmare for immigrants in this country. Yeah. Tell me about the feeling changing from Obama to Trump. Did you know in advance that maybe Trump's anti-immigration policies would take effect or did it sort of gradually happen through his presidency? Yes, I remember uh, I was in a fighting for a contract in, here in Harvard. And I used to always organize with the students in the campus. And that day they elect him, we cry with the students mm. and, and, and you know, in the Harvard yard in the status, uh, they have a rally and they invite me to speak. And all of us know what will happening. I think this because yeah. the how the discrimination show up like people discriminate more when he was in the power uh, see our kids suffer that because i put you one example i have my daughter and just one classmate told her oh the government will send you to mexico just because of or of the color of her skin and I didn't hear in those things in, in the Obama era because, you know, this is harm the the community. It seems that with the rise of Trump and his inflammatory rhetoric, many people felt empowered to speak in harsh ways toward immigrants because the commander in chief of the land was doing so. So it, it really ushered in this era of impropriety. That's probably a generous way to put it. And, and at worst, um, just an incredibly cruel, malevolent view toward others. How do you explain xenophobia in America? Xenophobia, fear of foreigners. America is obviously, indisputably, the vast, vast, vast majority of, of Americans at some point or another trace their history here to immigrants, with Native Americans, of course, being a notable exception. So it's very, very strange to me that coming to the U.S. and pursuing the American dream seems like the fundamental pillar of this country. And yet so many Americans wanted to build the wall and uh, want to keep people out. It's strange to me fundamentally how so many people can have that view. What's your idea about what explains it, Doris? Why do you think it seems millions of Americans now are so xenophobic? I think the capitalists is who have the power. I feel like you make a good point because even the the answers for the, uh, the ex-president Donald Trump, his answers was immigrants. Right. But it's just the color of your skin. I think this is coming for who have fighting the power is like how can people make who is the first class, the second and the poor. I just described this like that, like, you know, big organization just want to make money. Uh, how can make money? Immigrants, you know, like I remember I, I have many conversations with the students here in Harvard, how uh, you can see the the detention centers 
you know, they invest money over there because if detention centers are full, they make a lot of money. And, you know, how people can go to jail is many factories in the jail, like they use the labor to make money because they can pay a lot of money per hour. They pay less. I feel this is the whole issue here. Like you make good point because I'm American, you know, just because I'm from Central, but I'm American, then many people coming from the other side. Right, right. And I know how the right to live in here. And what I understand is if we immigrants, if we are undocumented, we don't have documents for work, they can pay less money. People don't have a benefits. They can be in a union board. I can give you many examples how how I see the whole picture. Yeah. I, I don't know if I answered your question. You used the word power. Maybe can you elaborate on why power is a variable that you're thinking about? Okay, the corporations who have the money. You see, we have a big example now in the pandemic. The rich people coming more rich, but the poor people coming more poor. This is the the the, the kind of power I, I try to bring. You can see now how expensive is everything. But for us, like we work hard, two, three jobs, for this big corporation, they coming more uh, like me billionaires. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to hear about your work, your sort of day-to-day schedule, how you feel during your work. So give us a sort of picture of what does a day in the life of Doris Landaverde look like at Harvard? Yes, I have many experiences. I used to work in different campus, in medical school, law school, now I working in a, most the building is administration. It's kind of different when you work in classrooms, when you like we work in labs, custodial, we do almost everything in the university. Like for me, I start seven o'clock every day. My role is just make sure bathrooms have supplies, help my coworkers when they have a setup because it's a common area like students can come and study, they have some events, we put the tables, we are the people always do the setup, make sure everything is done for a parties, uh, you know, pick up trash. This is my routine every day. Because I work uh, as an activist in, in the National TPS Alliance, I have the opportunity to talk to professors in Harvard, because I work with the students, students sometimes help in the campaign. But before, like I used to work as a just custodial and I know involved in the community, I was kind of feel like invisible because mm. even professor, students, they don't even say good morning or thank you. Mm. You know, was like kind of like feel like like nobody realized that all the things we're doing in the university and i love work here because i after like i have a, a, a start a relationship with the students and educating how we feel i feel like these things improve in the university most people now say good morning most people say hi but before i feel like that because we do the 
the hard work, but sometimes we feel like nobody see that. And yeah. it's not just me. I, I hear in comments for my coworkers feel that way too. How was your job affected by the outbreak of the pandemic? When they send students home, we still continue working because, you know, was students, international students that they can live, but they they need accommodating in separate room and with the padron. You know, we work so hard in the first week, like we had to clean, I think, 700 rooms. Wow. In, in three days and was desesperity for all custodians because we don't have a mask and they say they don't have. We was really scary to get sick. And one time I remember uh, they have many custodial in one building clean and I had to take some custodial out. I called my union and I say, hey, man, the people can work like this. Here is more than seven, 60 people work together. They can get sick, you know, somebody can bring the virus. And, you know, I had to take some people out from the building to list them the density of, of them. And after that, they don't want to give masks to us. I one day I had the opportunity to talk to one student. He used to be the president of the, of the union, uh, the student union in Harvard. His name is Brando. I really appreciate him because he brought these two students and they start bring masks, you know, for the people in the yard. It's in the group I used to work in that, in that time, Kesa Dorms. And people were so happy when they received those masks, you know, because we were so scary to get sick, to get the virus. That's great that the students did that and doesn't reflect well on the university, to say the least, that they weren't able to find a way to give their essential workers masks during that very frightening time. How did you first get involved in the union? You know, I am a Muslim and I used to work in law school in that time you know, and Latina, and most workers in the area was Latinos like me, and they didn't understand or respect my my religion and always bullying at me. Mm. I start like raise my voice and say, people had to respect me. I know one union rep, uh, her name was Jennifer because she left the union. And she kind of helped me, you know, to the university, give training to the workers because people need training, you know, like how we are in a, a different culture. Like we had to respect each other. We had to respect everyone. And after that, she she like, you know, how I raised that concern and I start working. And that time, I think was in 2000. 15 or 16, I don't remember, but uh, we started working in the campaign for a contract for custodial at Harvard, and I started help her for my first time because I didn't know what is mean unions, I didn't know, just I learned little by little, but I have kind of convinced people, like one day we have a rally and I bring 200 custodial out to rally Amazing. Uh, in the yard. 
en, en just in one night, make a calls. And, and I think this is how to start and get in, in, involved. After that, in law school too, a supervisor discriminate custodial because they're color. But the union teach me what we can do if this is happening. And I raise the voice for them and to help them because this is affect people emotional when somebody, you know, discriminate them for their color. And with the help with the union and, and uh, the supervisor got fired. But sometimes, you know, management sometimes not like that and they try to to put the workers against me. But all those things is help me to grow up and learn more and more how to defend custodial or how to help them. That's an inspiring story. And I think you, you have a gift for connecting with people and organizing people and, and mobilizing people. That's great. If you don't mind me asking, Doris, how did you become a Muslim? Probably a lot of listeners will hear that you're from El Salvador, and it's certainly thought of as a Christian nation predominantly. Were you raised um, as a Muslim, or did you convert to Islam? No, I convert in 2010. I think everybody remember what happened in 2001 when of course. we feel scary, but I start met with people, and I start find out the different story that what we're hearing in the news. Yeah. Like how they take care of each other, how they, I don't know how to explain you, like, I like that, and this is the reason I, I come in uh, to be a Muslim. So the sort of community-centered aspect of it, people being yes. sort of integrated, helping each other, engaged with each other's lives. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the best and worst parts of living in the U.S. compared to living in El Salvador, where you grew up? Here, I, I feel free. I can drive in the middle of na a night and I don't feel scary to be alone. In my country, you can do that because somebody mm. can try to steal things from you or they can kill you. You know, that is scary. And also, I remember when I was seven or eight years old, like, we suffered the civil war. This is, was a nightmare, like, horrible things. Like, I lived there, like, I don't want. And, and you know, this is like a trauma. Like, you think, you always thinking this is happening again. And um, since I come here, I don't feel scary in that way, you know what I mean? I think the worst parts I live in in United S is when the when we have the last administration is because, you know, the races. In my work as an educator, I've worked with people from Brazil who have said similar things that it's dangerous to go out at night. I've heard the same from people living in Mexico. Who are the people who essentially are the people who are trying to steal from others or would potentially even murder people in some cases. The reason I asked what might seem like a silly question is because I think all people have the potential for good and bad in them. I think most people are good. I think most people try to be good. I think the people who are, quote, bad are doing bad things due to a variety of circumstances. It could be desperation. Someone could be so poor and hungry that they could resort to violence. It could be related to mental illness. 
It could be related to getting involved in, in a gang or, or sort of organized crime. And in some cases, perhaps it could be that some people are just wanting to do evil. I, I think that group is probably very small. I think the other reasons are probably more pronounced. But I think about, you know, in the U.S., like, why is it that I, I was born and raised here? And where I'm from in Pennsylvania, certainly I could drive at night freely. I live in, in Boston. I, I felt that way. I live in New York City now. And I think since the pandemic, New York is, you know, you might not want to be on the subway late at night these days, but more or less, it's pretty safe. But I'm thinking, like, what constitutes the absence of this type of people in the U.S.? Maybe it's just more organized police forces, or maybe it's just the fact that there's less corruption in general, which means lower homeless populations, lower organized crime. I'm just curious, who who actually do you think are those people in El Salvador who would potentially steal from you or hurt you at night? El Salvador was hard for a civil war, I think, 12 years. Yeah, 10 or 12 years. Yeah. And the United contribute, you know, they pay to the army, I think, $1,000 per day. And how this affect after the civil war is when they dis dismantle the guerrillas, they dismantle the, the army. It's not a job for those people. Like you say, they, they do this because they no find a job. And or people are, you know, a lot of people immigrate to U.S., but when they return back to the country, they already have a gang. Sometimes I'm tired that they play in Central America for games, but the, gang, the gangs born in the United States. That's and, a great point. Yes, and they, they bring those ideas to our country. And this is what happened in El Salvador. I, I was see the news, I feel like yesterday or before yesterday, how the um, police got a lot of gangs members. Mm. And believe me, the things they do it is so bad. How they start is because people, uh, parents immigrate, they, after that, uh, they return back and they are already part of the gangs here in the United States and they start organizing the gangs in, in El Salvador. And this is how how it start. I think you you touch a, a good point. I feel it's other conversation. <laughs> like people to know why we are here uh, because in why we, we run for for our country. Who is behind that? Yes, right. What are the structural causes and so on? Well, I would love to have you back on the show to talk more about that. Uh, I really appreciate your perspective and your bravery and your wisdom. Thank you so much. And just, Doris, to close, what can people do, people in general, for the TPS cause? Oh, they can do many things. They can go to the website, National TPS Alliance, so Mass TPS Committee. They can donate, $1 can make a difference to the campaign, or also they can call a representative or Senate, call them and say, we want a uh, permanent residency for TPS holders. There's many ways, like I say, they can support. Also, uh, we will have a march in Washington, D.C. on July. We want to put pressure on President Biden to reinstall the TPS for Central America and also expand the TPS for Guatemala. Excellent. Well, I hope people follow up on those recommendations. 
Is there anything else you'd want to share, Doris? I know we just sort of scratched the surface of some of these big, complex issues in 45 minutes of talking, but I think that this was a good introduction. Anything that you want to share at all before we close? No, just I want to thank you for inviting me and to have me in this conversation. I really enjoy to educate the community about why immigrants are here and how we need the support for everybody uh, listening us and Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Doris. It was a pleasure having you, and I hope we can do it again in the future. Okay, I will. Okay, take care, Doris. Be well. Bye. Bye.